Hello. It's been a long time, but I'm glad to be back. Let's see. We are going to eventually be in Ephesians 1, but my burden today is, is a little different than normal Sundays. Usually with a sermon, you're supposed to, you want to take a passage and you want to explain what it means, and then you're supposed to explain what you're supposed to do with it. What is God doing with what he's saying in this passage? This is going to be different. We're pausing to reflect on who God is. It's Trinity Sunday. So my burden is, is real simple. It's just this. If you're a Christian, I want you to be able to leave here better knowing who God is so you can love him more. That's all I'm trying to do today. So there's going to be no application. There's going to be nothing like you need to go out and do this with a, with a, with a, with a torch in your hand and go forth. I want you to leave here. God wants us to leave here today knowing who he is and how to love him more. Knowing who he is a little bit better than when we walked in here this morning. God made us to know and to worship him, like the real him. If you're close to someone, you want to know about the person, right? Or you're not really close if you don't know each other. God rescued us. He wants us to know him. In Deuteronomy 6, which is where Moses really began, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a sermon. But in uh, Deuteronomy 6, where Moses really begins his sermon, his application, he relays God's message and he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. He said, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He doesn't want us to forget. He does, he rescues us, he takes us to a new place, he changes us and works on us, but then we could, we could forget who he actually is. And Israel did that a lot. We can do that too sometimes. And on Trinity Sunday, I want us to, I want us to think about who God is, he's triune so we can know him so we can know the real him you can't have a relationship or a community you can't have a relationship with your heavenly father with god unless you actually know who he is he knows us if you're a christian he knows you because he chose you he saved you do we know him so trinity sunday we're eventually going to be in ephesians chapter one toward the last part of the sermon we're going to go through this uh the sermon in four four steps number one what is the Trinity, which will be a short section. Number two, why do, we why do Christians believe in the Trinity? Because there are other groups that don't who claim to be Christian who say there is no Trinity. Um, and very, I'm not going to go into the, those heresies, but there, there have been people who claim to be Christians all through church history who have disagreed. Almost all, well, all real Christians have agreed. Why? Why, do Christians so, why are Christians so focused on the Trinity? God is triune. Number three, how can our one God eternally exist as three persons? The three, how can three be one? How can one be three? That's hard to picture in our minds. And I'm going to give, I'm going to offer a way to think about this that may help you. I offered it during Trinity Sunday two years ago, but no one probably remembers anyway. So it'll all be new, okay? All be new. But it's a refresher. It's good stuff. How can three be one? Some models to help you think through this from real life. 
And the last part, which is Ephesians 1, how can I see, right? How can I see the Trinity in the Bible? Where can it leap off the page at me, at you, so you can see it just when you read your Bible? That's what Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14 will, will get us. So we'll pray and we'll look at this. Now, my, my, the, big, the big caveat I have is this. It's so easy when you talk about doctrine to be cold, right? To just be cold and to talk like a professor who has a stack of books by his bedside. And this is the most personal doctrine we can talk about because it's the, we're talking about the God who saved us. So as we talk about this stuff, this is not... This is not abstract, nerdy, ivory tower stuff that theologians worry about. This is real, and I'm trying very hard to make it real for us, real for you, real for normal people. So please don't think of this as a dry, academic discussion. We're talking about who God is, and I'm going to try very hard to make this real and relevant to you in your, in your everyday life. So let's pray, and we'll dive in. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to know you. Help us to love you. Help us to, to take away at least something from the message today, from your word about who you are and how we can know you. Because if we know you, the more we know you, the better we can love you and be good children for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the Trinity? This should not be a shock to you. But here's a definition. I'm going to break it down into three components in a second. But this is a very good definition of the Trinity. Within the one being that's God, one being who's God, there has always existed three persons, co-equal and co-eternal, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a good definition. And you don't have to memorize it. You can just remember three like pillars, like a three-legged stool. If you take a leg out of the stool, you're going to fall over. If you take two legs out of the stool, you're definitely going to fall over. The stool needs three legs in order to be a stool. There are three legs to this stool that is the Trinity, that is God. There's only one God. Simple, right? Two, um, there are three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And three, they're each equal and eternal. I mean, one didn't begin at a certain point in time. They've all been around. Father, Son, and Spirit have always been around forever, and they're equal. The Father is not better than the Son. The Son is not better than the Spirit. They're all equal, right? If you, have an organ if you work in state government or in any government or in any workplace, and you have an organizational chart with the gal in charge and then the managers underneath her and like it branches off into infinity, that is not the Trinity where Father, Son, Spirit. Okay? No, no organizational chart for God. It's just... They're all equal. They're all up here, right? They're all equal. And they've all been around forever, each of them. So these three pillars are the three legs of the stool for the Trinity. If you, can rem you don't need to memorize a script. If you can remember these things, you will always be fine. Always be perfectly fine and always be able to spot uh, where someone might be confused whom you could help. One God, three persons, they are each equal and eternal. That's it. Can remember that you understand the trinity the problem that the church has faced for years for centuries since the very beginning is how can you have one god and yet three persons and still say you have one god how does this work the 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 one god but three persons how do you make this work how is the how did how does this happen so we'll talk about that in a moment but this is the trinity 
So see, part one's already done. The sermon will take seven minutes at this rate. How about that? The second thing I want to talk about is why do Christians believe it? Why are Christians so obsessed with believing that God is triune? Well, because scripture, that's, that's the conclusion scripture gives us. So I'm going to give you a primer, a real quick 100 mile an hour drive by of what, how to do Bible study in a responsible way. Why Christians believe in the Trinity. Some of the stuff I've shown before, um, so you may or may not recognize it. But scripture may, leads us to that conclusion. God has spoken and he's given us his revelation in the scriptures. There's two basic, if you've been on Monday nights, you're probably sick of hearing me say this for the evangelistic book study. There are, there are two like foundational rocks that reality is built on. Number one is that the God of the Bible exists and he made everything. That's like the basis for understanding reality. God exists and everything that's here is because he made it. Foundation two is that God has given us a book so that we can know about him and what he's up to. Those two things are the, the bedrock, like a foundation for a house. You know, if the foundation isn't built right, the whole thing goes. The leaning tower of Pisa, like the foundation has been sinking, right? That's why it leans. I've read these stories in the New York Times about these like needle skyscrapers that are like a thousand feet tall, these luxury condominium things in, in New York City and in other places. I think I read an article about one in San Francisco or something where it's this huge mega skyscraper, but the foundation's failing. So it's like sinking as it's under construction, right? If the foundation isn't good, you're all gonna come tumbling down. Those two foundations are the things that like anchor reality for a Christian or for anyone. If you're not a Christian, you're just not acknowledging the reality. God exists and he made everything. Number two, he's told us about himself and his plan in his book. Because God made existence, he's sort of qualified to tell us about it. The guy who makes the thing can write the, uh, the, the instruction manual. You go to Ikea, hopefully you don't, and you buy a dresser, and then you have to put it together and you lay out all this stuff. You can try and figure it out on your own, which I have done to my sorrow, or you can just follow the instructions that the Ikea lady wrote, and then everything will be fine, because she would know, since she designed the thing, follow the instructions. God has given us, told us about reality, about who we are, where we're, the big questions of life. Since he made everything, we can look to him for some answers. So scripture tells us. Scripture is kind of a big deal. This is how scripture works. Scripture is a vehicle for the Father to mold us into his son's image. You remember the passages in the New Testament about how uh, we're being changed from one glory into another to look like Jesus, who's the, the image of the invisible God. We're being changed to look like Jesus. Scripture is the vehicle the Father uses to mold us into the Son's image by the power of the Spirit. You see the Trinity thing I just did there? Sort of snuck it in, uh, snuck it in there. The words in the Bible themselves, just by themselves, don't do anything, but they're the means for the Spirit to work to work on us, to illuminate our hearts and our minds and convict us and move us to change. The church community, scripture and spirit, God speaks to us when the spirit applies his word to our lives. So why do Christians believe in the Trinity? Because that's what scripture says. So I'm going to give you a quick primer on how to do Bible study in a responsible way. The Christians have done, which is why they believe in the Trinity, right? Number one, if you want to know what the Bible says, you should probably do what? 
read and gather evidence, right? What does it say about the Trinity? Well, maybe I'll look and I'll, I'll see. Um, if you want to study anything, you need to focus on the thing, on passages that actually address your question. One verse one-offs that might mention something about your question but aren't teaching passages are not the best places to go. Like if you want to talk about who did Jesus die for, 1 John 2.1 is not the best place to go. He mentions it in a throwaway kind of way. Not that it doesn't have anything to do with it, but it's there are other places where it's taught, like in Hebrews, for like several chapters, where that ex exact issue is spoken about. Go there if you want to find out about who did Christ die for. Don't do one verse one-offs that you pull from random places. Those can be helpful, but only after you look at passages that actually teach the thing that you're talking about. So gather all the evidence, number one. Number two, lay all the evidence out on the table, right? Who is God? Gather all the evidence. Deuteronomy 6, our Lord, our God, the Lord is one. One God. Okay, that's, I got it. That's fine. Understood. But then you go to the New Testament, and Jesus is baptized, and as he comes out of the water, the Father speaks from heaven to the Son as the Spirit descends upon him. Sounds like three. And then Jesus speaks to the Father and has communications with him in prayer. So we don't have one. We don't have one. Now we have two. And then Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, who can be lied to, which is a personal thing. You can't lie. I can't lie to this mouse, but I can lie to a person. So we have one God, but then evidence suggests we have three people who each are God, who communicate with one another and talk to each other. Jesus speaks to the Father. The Father responds and speaks to Jesus. Jesus speaks about sending the Spirit who the Father will give him. The Father will give me the Spirit, and I will send the Spirit to you. So you'll never be alone, in John 14. So you lay out all the evidence, and you say, well, what, what, if I put everything together, what does the evidence suggest? It suggests that we have one God who eternally exists in three persons. The evidence, you lay it out. There is a way to weigh the evidence to make sure you're not going, uh, to make sure that you're not going off the reservation. How certain should you be? How certain should you be about the evidence? Now, you can do this in your head instinctively. You might do it in other areas of your life. Just rate on a scale of one to five how strong is this evidence. And how strong it is determines how, how, how much you should be willing to argue for it. Number one, really clear. Number five, really, 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 really weak. Not everything is number one. I, don't want, I, ho I hope I don't like break your heart, but not every doctrine that you hold to in the Bible is based on a direct statement. Is the Trinity based on a direct statement? Is there anywhere in the Bible where it says there's one God who eternally exists as three co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? Is it there? Do we have a verse that says that in all, with all the nuances that I threw up on the screen at the beginning? It's not there, which is number two. Number one is the strongest possible evidence. Number five is really weak. Number two, it's the only conclusion based on the data. It doesn't say it, but there's no other, there's no other explanation. It's the only possible explanation. One God, check. Father, Son, and Spirit each speak to one another and refer to one another as separate people, but yet there's one God. Well, there must be one God who eternally exists as three, three co-eternal, three equal people. There it is. There's the, that's the only conclusion. Number three is lower on the scale. The best explanation 
It's not, not everything's answered, but it's like the best, the best bad option, right? There's problems with everyone. This is, some people would put the rapture at number three, the pre-tribulational rapture at number three. There's all sorts of unanswered questions, but it's the best explanation. Other Christians would disagree, but I mean, it's, it's not, it's not rock solid. It's, there's, there's unanswered questions. There's discussion to be had. So it'd be a three. Four, weak. Like, because of this and this and this, therefore that. The Bible doesn't say you have to be baptized to take the Lord's Supper. Many Baptist churches make you be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper. Why? Based on weak inferences. Doesn't mean it's false. It just means don't argue about it. Like, you shouldn't fight about it because it's just not that clear. You can see how you get there, but it's not, like, clear. And then five is very, very weak. Really weak. Like, weaker than that. So, the Trinity, it's pretty certain. I'd put the Trinity at a two. There's no direct statement, but it's the only logical conclusion from looking at all the evidence. This is how Christians study the Bible. This is how Christian brothers and sisters from years, centuries gone by, have studied the Bible. There are also plenty of Christians who don't study the Bible this way, and everything is the most important thing, and they'll fight with you about everything. Those Christians are unstable, and you should avoid them. But there's, there's a hierarchy of how strong is the evidence. How strong is it? There's nothing revolutionary there. The next thing you should do, which Christians have done about the Trinity, is how do we make sure that we're not being just crazy, right? Every, every heresy has started, in all of church history, has pretty much started because one person or a group of people have decided, you know, there's so much corruption in the church. We're going to throw everything out and just start with the open Bible and nothing else. And every single time that happens, they end up producing a heretical cult. The Jehovah's Witnesses came about. Charles Taves Russell came about from this, this, this impulse so corrupt. Everything so We're going to throw everything out and just start from nothing. All the, all the centuries of our brothers and sisters in Christ, all the wisdom, the Holy Spirit ha has moved in their lives to interpret scripture and understand. You know, throw it all away. We're just going to start fresh and just nothing but an open Bible and every single time heresy results. Um, every single time. You need more than scripture alone. You need scripture that is the supreme standard, but that's also informed by some other stuff to make sure that you're not crazy. Have you ever, I've had experiences where I've worked late at night. I had a job where I worked late at night in an operations center when I was as a civilian, as a Navy contractor. And I had really good, I was doing my graduate degree uh, at seminary then. I did the whole thing in like a year. So I was doing nothing all night long, like from six at night to six in the morning, studying theology and writing papers. And I had some ideas that I thought were really, really great, like at two in the morning. But there's something that happens when you like go to bed and you wake up and it's two in the afternoon and you look back and you're like, what on earth? What was I thinking? It's like something happens to you late at night when you're tired and you're writing things. You, you think some crazy weird things, right? You needed to step back and have a reality check and, and get a, some perspective before you just say, yeah, that must be it. You know, reality check. These three things are a reality check which what Christians have done with, with the Trinity over and over. Scripture is the supreme standard. That's it. Everything must conform with Scripture. The second thing is the Holy Spirit, the Scripture doesn't sit by itself. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, guides us into truth, leads us to love God, love our neighbor, and have fruit from this knowledge that we're getting from the Scripture. So the Scripture isn't 
The scripture is a vehicle for God to talk to us. So we don't just need scripture, we need the Holy Spirit. We need God working through us. The third thing is tradition. People don't like to hear tradition, but I just read you a creed um, from the back of our hymnal. I mentioned the Apostles' Creed. I mentioned the Nicene Creed. God has spoken to other Christians in a time other than ours. I know sometimes it's hard to believe, but he has. And we should take the collective wisdom of our brothers and sisters and make, sh make sure we learn from them, otherwise we're just going to repeat their same mistakes. Or take a long time to come up with something that people came up with 700 years ago. So has anyone in the church, is this, is this a doctrine that no one in the church has ever believed? If that's true, you're probably going crazy and you should stop now, right? If you have come up with something that no one else in the history of Christianity has ever found out, you're probably crazy. You need to stop, like stop and turn around and go back because that cannot happen. The Holy Spirit will not lead you, you, into discerning this mystical truth that no one in the history of the Christian church has ever found before. No, it's not gonna happen. It won't happen. Uh, Reason, does it make sense? Is, can, can it be made to make sense? Does it make sense of the world? Does it make sense of what the Bible says? Does it make sense of what the gospel is? And experience. Does this help us learn more about God? The less the thing you're studying helps you learn more about God, the, the less important it is. But the more it helps you know Christ, grow, the more, the more it gives the Holy Spirit fuel to change you into Jesus' image, the more important it is. So how important is it that Jesus comes back before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation? I'm not saying that you can't have an opinion. I'm saying in the grand scheme of things, how important is it for your growth in Christ as a Christian to, no, to, to, to fight about that question? How important is it it's not important. It's not as important as Jesus, God, gospel, good works to show that you love God and he's changed your life. It's sort of down the list, way down the list. So Christians have always believed that the scripture teaches the Trinity from the Bible study drive-by that I just mentioned. We have Deuteronomy 4, which I've mentioned. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God. Fine, great. But then Peter, Peter was raised as a Jewish person. Surely he believes there's only one God. But yet, at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, To God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's one, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that's two, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, that's three, and sprinkled with his blood. Okay. We have the Nicene Creed, which was, dates from the early 4th century. Peter, the 1st century, Nicene Creed, the 4th century. I believe in one God, the Father, God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, one, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, two and three, who with the Father and Son together is to be worshipped and glorified. Three, worshipped and glorified together. One last confession, then I'll leave you alone. From 1833, first century, fourth century, 19th century, we believe that there is one and only one living and true God, that in the unity of the Godhead, 
There are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, equal in every divine perfection, equal, like I mentioned before, and executing distinct and harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. And I just show you that not because you, you need to write down what the New Hampshire Confession says, but Christians through all history have believed, because of the Bible study thing I mentioned, that there's one God who exists in three persons. From Peter in the first century, the fourth century, the 19th century, to what our church and millions of other churches believe today. So now, that's why Christians believe in the Trinity, because we see it from the scripture. That's the conclusion scripture leads us to. So now I want to talk about the third, the third part of our sermon. How can one be three? We have one God, fine, but yet three persons. How do you make this work? The New Testament shows us Father, Son, and Spirit, they each have will, they each have emotion, they each think of themselves as somehow distinct from the Father. Jesus doesn't believe he's the Father. He prays to the Father. The Father doesn't think he's the Son. He sends the Son. The Spirit doesn't think he's the Son because he's sent from the Father and the Son. So none of them think that they're the other person. There's no multiple personality disorder, okay? So each of them knows that they are distinct, but yet they're all, there's only one God. So what do we do? The best way that I believe has ever been put forth to explain how, can you, how should you think of this, you should think of the Trinity as a, as a society or a community, of one community or society of three people. One community or society of three people. You have the triangle here. This tries to get at that. You have a triangle here, one triangle with three corners, Father, Son, and Spirit. But then you have this circle that interpenetrates each corner and swirls around trying to get at the fact that we're not dealing with three separate individuals. We're dealing with one, one society, one unit, which is made of more than one person. One unit of three persons. One being who exists as three persons. None of, them owes, none of them owes his life to the other. They've all been around forever, and they're all equal in power and glory. And when the scripture refers to God, it's most of the time it's referring to God in this triune sense. Sometimes you see Father and Son and Spirit in the New Testament, but when God is referred to generically, it's referring to God in the triune sense, in this sense. The triune, all-encompassing, the one unit, the one compound unit that is God sense. So I'm going to offer you three analogies in case you're, trying, in case you're starting to fall asleep. Right? This will jolt you wide awake and turbocharge you. So you just need to like hold on to the person next to you so you're not shaken out of your seat. I'm going to give you three analogies that help get this across. How can one be three? We have one community or society of three people. That's the best way to understand who God is. And here are the three analogies. The first one is what is, what is God's fundamental nature? 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. He is love. Not that he has love or that he um, contains love. God is love. That, that's one of his core, a core attribute that defines who he is. Not just a character, but in essence who he really is. And if God is love, he needs someone to love. 
right? God needs someone to love. Love needs an object. You have to love something. You can't just love yourself. God doesn't, God's not solitary where he just loves himself. God is love because you have one society of Father, Son, and Spirit bound and knit together in an inseparable way, and they love one another. Jesus talks about that in John, in John 17. Uh, he wants to go back to heaven to the love he had with the Father before the world began. I mean, they, they, they love one another. And it's this, this love that binds them together, the three persons into one unit, one single unit that love requires. Because you can't just love, some people do love themselves and they're losers. We need an object to love. We need someone to love. I guess that was harsh. It's not good to love yourself. No one loves a narcissist. We all know people like that. Maybe we're like that, and we know we need to change that, but we should not love ourselves. That's not a good trait to have, right? It's not good. God doesn't, when it says God is love, he doesn't love himself. He loves because Father, Son, and Spirit love one another, and that's what, that's what binds them together in, this, in the picture I showed, the picture I showed earlier. So God is love. It means there needs to be more than one solitary, be, one, one solitary person there. The second thing is a marriage, which I think is extremely powerful that I think you can get. So if the love thing was like, eh, the marriage thing should click. In a marriage, you have one, one couple, but two people, right? That's not hard to get. One couple, two people. Um, legally, you're a single unit. You're bound together by law. Two people, one couple. You can, sometimes you can act in each other's names for the benefit of the other. Both represent the other. If you talk to Starla, you're basically talking to me because she'll relay the information. We're a couple, we're a, we're a team, we're a unit. Um, both uh, husband and wife are knit together in a non-physical way by shared life and experiences. I'm not talking about sexual stuff. I'm saying just life has bound you to the person. That's why divorce is so painful. You're ripping, up, it's like you're ripping apart two people who've been glued in a non-physical way, glued together. Their lives, their experiences, their hearts, their minds have all been knit together into one unit. And to break that apart hurts. Why? Because that, in a small, shadowy way, but a real way, is a picture of the unity that Father, Son, and Spirit have. They are one society, one community, bound together by love, and they cannot be broken apart. You break it apart, it's over. They can never be broken apart. It's no accident that when the Holy Spirit led Paul to choose an analogy that pictured us united with Christ, he chose marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. There's a reason why he chose that marriage analogy, because that gets across this union we have with Jesus. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ or be in union with Christ? It means to be joined together with him. And then he mentions, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then he goes on with this marriage analogy. Marriage is a good analogy. Two people, one unit. And we all get what that means. We all get what that means. The third one that I'll offer is this idea of different body, different organs in your body, where 
I want you, there are a lot of organs in your body, but I want you to picture, um, I want you to picture brain, heart, lungs, and know that without these three, your body is not going to work. Okay? You need all three of them. They need to work together. They don't exist. They don't form. They don't have any purpose on their own. None. If, your bra if you have no brain, your heart, and your lungs are wasting their time and they're not going to work. If you have no heart, your brain and your lungs are wasting their time. If you have no lungs, your brain and your heart are wasting their time. They are only what they are. Your body is only a living body if all three of those are working together and are there, if that makes sense. You have three different body parts, each working together in distinct and harmonious offices to make your body live. And if any of them go, you go. They cannot be broken apart, they can't be separated, they depend on each other, and they have to be considered as a unit. My own father passed away because his lungs and his heart had problems. They wanted to fix his heart, but first they had to fix his lungs. But they couldn't fix his lungs, and he passed away. All three have to work, and if one of them goes, you go. You can't be you. So Father, Son, and Spirit are what they are in unity with one another. You can't break the Spirit away and send him in the corner. God would not exist. They're bound together, and they work together, a single community consisting of three distinct persons who each work with one another and together and, 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 and are, in, in a real sense, act for one another. So those analogies try and get across what I'm saying. How can three be one? If that's ever bothered you, I hope this helps you picture, especially the marriage thing, especially the marriage thing. If that's ever been a stumbling block that you just can't understand the Trinity because I don't know how three can be one, the marriage thing is extreme. I think it's very powerful. And if you, I think it will help you say okay in your mind, okay, I understand. I understand because I understand how marriage works. One couple consisting of two persons. I am not my wife, my wife is not me, yet we are one single unit. We act for one another, with one another, together always. So I'm not trying to be academic, I'm trying to give you something to picture this because this is a vexing question. If you want to see where this is in scripture, I give you an example here from John, 4, John 17, 22 and 23. This is Jesus speaking, praying to the Father, again, the Son praying to the Father, um, for the disciples. He says this. Now pay attention to the, the, pay attention to what he says. The glory that you have given me, the Father has given Son glory. I have given to them, the disciples, that they may be one even as we are one. We are one. John 10.30 says the same thing. The Father and I, we are one. Two people, one. And you can add the Spirit in there too. But you, you can see this. So that they might be one even as we are one. The believers can be so united in their mission that they can be one just like Jesus says to the Father, just like we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So this is where you can see some of this. You can see it on, on, the, on the screen on your page. Father and Son, one. Two people, yet one. 
united together, inseparable, I in them and you in me, this in language, meaning it's like you're, you're, you're molded to the person's soul. That's what Paul means when he says in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. What's that mean? You go through a door, means your, your, your soul, you in a non-physical way, it's been united with Christ, bound to him, and it's not going to be ripped apart. And that's the same way Father, Son, and Spirit are. They are each in one another, bound. That's why I keep doing this like I'm having a problem. I mean, I'm trying, they're, they're bound together. I don't know what else to say. Where can you see this? This is nice, right? It's, but it can be sort of abstract. How can you see this? I ask you to walk with me through Ephesians chapter 1. It'll take a moment or two. All I want you to do is see the relationships. See the distinction. Ephesians, Deuteronomy 6 says there's one God. If we can agree that there's one God, but yet we see something in Ephesians 1 that suggests three persons who are this one God, we have the doctrine of the Trinity. So I want you just to see it with me. And the most personal way I can get you to see it is how did you become a Christian? How did God rescue you? That's the most personal thing God has done for you. So this will take a few moments, and if you can see this and appreciate what the triune God did in your salvation, then the doctrine of the Trinity can become extremely real to you. This is what it says, Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Now, I'll just mention the distinction of persons as we just read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that's two. Apostle of Christ by God's will. He's referring to the Father. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be, that's two again, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, two, two people, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The Father has blessed us in Christ, two. For he chose us in him, God chose you to be in Jesus Two, two people, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestinated us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Two, again, father and son are totally distinguished from one another. In accordance with his pleasure and will, God's pleasure, the father's pleasure and will. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Or if you have the King James, I think it says, uh, in his, freely given us in his beloved. Who is the Father's beloved? It's Jesus. Two. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Jesus' blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of whose grace? God's grace. Two. Distinction. One God, but there's a clearly distinction between Father and Son here, that he lavished on us. With all, under, with all wisdom and understanding, he made, us, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Two, two people. God purposed, the Father purposed in Christ to do this. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, in Christ, 
we were also chosen. Who chose us in Christ? Who chose us to be part of Christ? Who? The Father. We were chosen by the Father to be in him. Having been, verse 11, having been predestinated according to the plan of him, the Father, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, who is different than the Father, might be for the praise of his glory. Whose glory? Whose glory? The Father's glory. The Father purposed that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, would be for the praise of his glory, the Father's glory. Again, there's distinction. And you who were included in Christ, when you heard the message, the truth, message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him. Marked in who? Jesus, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You have three at the end, after going all this time about God's plan through Jesus, now the Holy Spirit is here. I could have gone to other passages, but still, when you believed, you were marked in Jesus with a seal. What's the seal? It's the Holy Spirit, who Jesus received from the Father from Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and poured out on all the believers at Pentecost. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession? God is referring to the Father. You have all three here, to the praise of his glory. That is what I have today on Trinity for Trinity Sunday. Four things to remember that we covered. One, what is the Trinity? Two, why do Christians believe it? Because the Bible, properly understood, leaves us no alternative but to believe the one God that Deuteronomy 6 speaks about consists of three equal and eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Because Father, Son, and Spirit talk to one another, act upon one another, and interact in distinct ways in Scripture, like three people do. Like I talk to you, you talk to me. Three, how can, how can one God be three persons? Those analogies, one's, God is one society of persons knit together in love. And those analogies, especially the marriage one, is meant to get across how can one, in marriage case, how can one be two? How can that happen? A shadowy reflection of how can one be three in the Trinity. And four, where can I see this in the Bible? You can see it in your salvation. The Father chose you for salvation. The Son died for your sins and was perfect for you in your place. The Spirit changed your heart so that you became a believer. Like the New Hampshire Confession said that I put up on the screen earlier, Father, Son, and Spirit are executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. They're each doing different things, but all working in harmony together to save sinners like you and like me. And I hope this isn't an academic thing, but it helps us to know God more and to want to love him more. And as we read the scripture, especially in the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, we look for and see the Trinity in Jesus' baptism in how we're supposed to baptize in the, in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We can see the Trinity if we start looking for it. We've confirmed in our faith and know that this isn't a dusty doctrine floating around in clouds, 
but it's real. It's the God who rescued you and saved you. He wants us to know him so we can love him more. I hope our, I hope the scripture today has helped us to want to do that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We thank you for our salvation. Thank you for you, for being love, for having mercy and kindness and grace. Thank you for rescuing us. Help us to know you more, to love you more, and to want to be better conformed to your son's image by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.